As you're being seated, if you'll find your Bible and open it up with me to Luke chapter 13. She was once a vibrant young woman. She was full of life. Everybody recognized that she had incredible potential. And then the accident happened. We're not sure exactly what happened. Perhaps she had gone to the well to draw water for her family every day. She would have to do that, and she would carry those heavy jars of water back home. Maybe in handling one of those jars of water, she stumbled, and somehow in that she damaged her back, and she hurt herself severely. Anybody in the room ever had back pain? Yeah, 8.30 services like everybody. had, had back. So if you haven't had it yet, it's coming your way, okay? Imagine back pain without the smell of icy hot. There's no chiropractor. There's no muscle relaxer. No Advil. There's none of those uh, human jumper cable things that they put on your back whenever you have sore muscles. For 18 years... This woman had been crippled by her pain, bent over. Now, she didn't just have a physical problem, but she also had a spiritual problem. Her physical pain was keeping her from God. And I think one of the things we need to realize is that the evil one will often use physical things in our life to keep us from spiritual growth. He will try to distract us with those things in order to keep us from growing and being the people that God desires us to be. Well, one Saturday morning, she gets up and she hobbles down to her synagogue and she's unaware that day that she was about to hobble on to the pages of Scripture, that her story would become an inspirational story. A story that crossed the oceans and crossed the centuries. A story that we find landing in our hearts today, inspired by the Holy Spirit as Scripture. And so the story begins in Luke chapter 13 and verse 10. As he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, a woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for over 18 years. She was bent over. And could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called out to her, Woman, you are free of your disability. And then he laid his hands on her, and instantly she was restored and began to glorify God. Now imagine this scene. You are in synagogue, and Jesus himself is teaching. And so in the middle of the sermon... He locks eyes with this woman, and he looks beyond her outer appearance, and he begins to see the condition of her soul. Now, one of the things that Jesus often did was he would make things a little awkward, and so he calls her out in the middle of the sermon. Now, don't get nervous. That was perfect timing. You know, I say he calls her out and the phone rings, but uh, I'm not going to call you out today, okay? But but notice he, he says to her when he calls her out, woman, you are free of your disability. Now, by the way, 
Uh, that word woman there, it was not a derogatory sense within that culture. It was actually the way they used that word was a, a term of respect at that time. So he says to her, woman, and then he says, you are free of your disability. Now, which disability was Jesus referring to? It appears that he wasn't just talking about her physical health, although I think that was part of it. But I think he was also talking about the disability of her soul, the spiritual illness that she was struggling with. Verse 10, uh, Luke, who wrote this gospel, he, he was a physician. And so he's continually pointing out various medical details. And so he makes a point to make sure that we as the reader know that she was disabled by a spirit, that the physical condition also was accompanied by a spiritual condition. And so can you imagine the scene as she hobbled towards Jesus? And the Bible says that he lays his hands upon her. And whenever he touches her and calls her out, two miracles occur. One, she is physically healed. And two, she is spiritually healed. And then notice her reaction. She begins to praise God. You see, this condition that she had that was keeping her from God suddenly had been healed, and she immediately begins to praise God because she is free. She is free from pain, but more than that, she is free from the oppressive spirit that was keeping her from worshiping. And so she starts praising God and thanking Him for being set free from the bondage that had crippled her for 18 years. I mean, this was a good day in synagogue. Everything was set for the Jerusalem Lubies to have record sales that day. If you grew up in church in the 80s like I did, whenever you had a good day at church, mom and dad went to the cafeteria. Luby's Cafeteria, home of the quivering green jello with a little bit of whipped cream on top. Man, that was a good day in church whenever you got to go to Luby's. Everybody was happy that day. A, a miracle had occurred, but there was one person that was not happy at all. Look at verse 14. But the leader of the synagogue. Now, the leader of the synagogue, he was the guy that planned worship. He was the guy that took care of the synagogue. He was supposed to be a spiritual leader, a man of God. And so the leader of the synagogue is indignant. Now, why is he indignant? Because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Everybody go, oh. Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And so he responded by telling the crowd, there are six days when work should be done. Therefore, come on those days and be healed. <laughs> Think about that verse for a second, okay? There's six days when work should be done. So come on one of those days to get healed. Not on the, not on the Sabbath day. He is fuming mad. <laughs> he doesn't have the courage to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Jesus. He doesn't go after Jesus. No, what he does is he berates the crowd. And he's angry with them, and he's mad that Jesus would heal this woman on the Sabbath. You say, now what's the big deal 
about the Sabbath. Well, let me talk to you a little bit about that. In Exodus chapter 20, God lays down the Ten Commandments. You've heard of the Ten Commandments before. And the fourth commandment right in there is that we are to remember the Sabbath and and keep it holy. The Sabbath in Old Testament days was Saturday. And so on Saturday, they were to rest. They were to keep that day holy. Now, we refer to theologically the do's and don'ts of the Old Testament as the law. So when I say law today, I'm not talking about the Constitution of the United States. I'm talking about the do's and don'ts of the Old Testament. And the heart of the law is what we call the Ten Commandments. And so right there in the Big Ten is remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So here was the idea. These individuals were hardworking people. When they settled in Israel, they became farmers primarily or sheep herders. Anybody grow up on a farm? We got one. The rest of you are just city slickers, right? Farmers do not work nine to five. Farmers work from sunup to sundown. It is hard work, and you have to do that work in order to keep the farm going. So God said to these agrarian people, one day a week, you're going to rest, and on that day, you're going to worship. So the Sabbath had a physical reality in that it helped people recover. They unplugged from the world to physically recover. The Sabbath also had a spiritual component that on that day they would reconnect with God. They would feed their soul spiritually. It had a community component that on the Sabbath day they would take time for relationships with their family. They would take time to cultivate relationships with their friends. And so community would be strengthened because they honored the Sabbath and they took that time off. It also built their faith. Because they had to trust God that they could take this time to rest and that He would still provide the harvest. The principle of the Sabbath still uh, is employed today for those of us who are Christians, that we should be intentional to take time off from our work to connect with God, to gather with God's people for worship, to spend time building relationships and community. You say, well, why do we worship on Sunday rather than Saturday? Because one of the things about the Sabbath is that it foreshadowed the coming of of Jesus Christ. And the, the Sabbath would foreshadow the rest that we would have in Christ. And so when Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, Christians began worshiping on Sunday. They would actually go into the temple complex and try to share the gospel on Saturdays, and they would worship on Sunday. You also have the day of Pentecost when the church was launched, and that occurred on Sunday. And so it became the the habit of Christians to begin worshiping on Sunday. But the Sabbath, part of it, was to foreshadow that something greater was coming, that Jesus was coming. You see, the Old Testament law, the do's and don't of the Old Testament, they reveal to us God's glory. They reveal to us God's holiness, His purity. But they also reveal something else to us. They reveal our inability to overcome 
our sin. You see, whenever I read the Old Testament Scriptures and I understand who God is and I understand His perfection and His holiness and His standard, it shines into my light and reveals to me that though I may think I'm a pretty good person, the reality is I fall short of God. The standard is not just being a pretty good person. The standard is perfection. And so the Old Testament law reveals to everyone that we fall short of God's holy standard. So it points us, stick with me now, it points us to the cross. The Old Testament law points us to our desperate need for God to extend to me and you a grace a grace that we do not deserve. For God to do something for us that we could never do on our own. And so you may remember that Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Sabbath pointed to Jesus. Jesus didn't say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, who find yourself bowed down and, and, and crippled beneath the weight of the law and beneath the weight of trying to be good enough, and I will put you to work. Come to me, and I will make it even harder for you. He said, no, come to me, and I will give you rest. Here's the irony. Make sure you catch this. The irony is that the synagogue leader was angry at Jesus for healing on the Sabbath when the Sabbath was actually all about the rest we find in Jesus. He had turned the Sabbath into something that it was never designed to be. And the meaning of the Sabbath was standing right in front of him. And he was angry about it. You see, just like the woman, the synagogue ruler, was bent over in pain. He too was suffering from a disease. And the disease that he was suffering from was legalism. Theologically, there's a term that we call legalism. Legalism occurs when somebody abandons salvation by grace and embraces salvation by works. Legalism occurs when you begin to think that if I do more good things than bad, the scales will kind of be bent in my favor, and when I reach the pearly gates, St. Peter will look at me and say, okay, you did some bad things, but you did more good than bad, so I'll let you in. The legalist thinks that somehow you can earn your salvation or work your way to the loving arms of God. And because of this, a legalist is always struggling. Spiritually, you are always dissatisfied because you are always trying to be good enough to achieve something you can never reach. Because the standard is not just pretty good. The standard is perfection. So here's what the theological legalist begins to do. You start throwing rocks at everybody else who doesn't measure up to you. Now here's a question for you. 
Why do we throw rocks at people? Why do we feel the need to criticize people? Tear them down? Why, why, why do we throw rocks? Well, a lot of times we throw rocks because it distracts us from our own sin. Okay, uh, well, I do some things I shouldn't, but I'm not as bad as that guy. You know? You know? Hey, maybe if I throw this over here, they'll look at them and not look at me. And so we start throwing rocks at people. Well, yeah, yeah, well, you do a really bad sin. I just told a little lie. But you, I mean, you, you, you did a horrible thing. And so we start throwing those rocks because it makes us feel better about ourselves. But here's the problem. With each rock that you throw, you begin building a wall. You see, those rocks land somewhere. And as they land, they begin piling up. And before you know it, all those criticisms, all those rocks, all those tearing other people down, you have formed a a wall that begins to isolate you from other people so that nobody gets close to you. And what's more, no one really wants to be close to you. Because they know that all you're going to do is tear them them down. You're just going to tear people down. When they're not around. So here's the symptoms of legalism. You begin reducing the Bible to a rule book. The Bible's just a rule book that tells us, do this, don't do that. No, the Bible is a story of the gospel. The Bible is a story of a God who created and then intervened into our scene so that we might be redeemed. The Bible is a story of grace. The Bible is a story of redemption. Yes, There are rights and wrongs. There is uh, holiness within Scripture. And grace does not uh, void life of, of, of integrity and ethics and right and wrong and morality. Holiness drives me to do the right thing, not in a cowering position, but holiness drives me to do the right thing with a motivation of love. But the legalist will reduce the Bible to nothing more than just a rule book. The Holy Spirit becomes spooky because the Holy Spirit isn't controllable. The Holy Spirit blows like the wind. Where it comes from, nobody knows. And where it's going, nobody knows. Like Nicodemus, we sometimes want to control the Holy Spirit. And the theological legalist will back away from ever talking about the Holy Spirit because that's too spooky. To the legalist, discipleship is about what you know. And so you fill your mind with knowledge, but there's very little doing. Church becomes about my needs. It's a spiritual spa where I go to have my needs met. Worship is about my glory, and I worship God and do certain things, not so that people might see the glory of God, but so that people might see me and bring accolades to me. The cure to legalism is not trying harder. It's not forcing everybody else to be like you. The cure to legalism is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let that sit in. The cure to legalism is the grace of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift not of works, so that no one can boast. The only thing that we as Christians have to boast in is the cross of Jesus Christ. 
that he has done something for us so magnificent and so amazing and so undeserved, and he has set us free. Legalism, when you adorn yourself in it, it will cripple you and it will hold you back spiritually. It will hold you captive and it will force you to pretend to be something that you could never be. And that's why the Lord answered the synagogue ruler in verse 15. And the first word that he used was hypocrite. Hypocrite. A hypocrite is one that wears a mask. One that is pretending to have it all together when you really don't. One that is pretending to be perfect whenever you never can be. One that is adorned in legalism rather than adorning yourself in the grace of Jesus Christ. So he begins, hypocrites, doesn't each one of you untie his ox or donkey from the feeding trough on the Sabbath and lead it to water? Satan has bound this woman, a daughter of Abraham, for 18 years. Shouldn't she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? And when he had said these things, all of his adversaries were humiliated. But the whole crowd was rejoicing over the glorious things he was doing. Jesus looks at the synagogue ruler and he basically says, dude, you're a fake. Okay, Jesus didn't use the word dude, but that was me. But he says, you're a hypocrite, you're a fake. You treat your animals better than you're treating this woman. You say it's okay for you to untie your animals and let them eat and drink on the Sabbath day, but you would prefer that this dear woman remain bound, imprisoned. And so he asked a question, shouldn't she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? Shouldn't she find her rest? Shouldn't she find the grace that she seeks? The freedom that she seeks? The new beginning that she seeks on the Sabbath day? That's what the Sabbath day is all about. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And Jesus will give you a rest that you can never find by just working harder and trying harder. Some of you wandered in here today and you've been tied up by years of theological legalism. You've spent a lifetime trying to be good enough, thinking that if you are just good enough, God will like you. Your theology is the apple theology of he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. And you think that if you do the right things, then you can earn the love of God. And you've even torn down others in order to try to make yourself look good. You thought you could be lovely enough for God to love you. But you've never had that turning point discovery. You've begun to understand that God's love for you is not based on your loveliness. God loves you in Christ. The call of Christ was not to try harder. The call of Christ was to believe in Him. To come to Him. And He will give you rest. And whenever you are in Christ, God sees you as His child His love is extended to you in Christ. And because you are God's child and you are in Christ, nothing can ever separate you from the love of God. You're His. You belong to Him. 
say, well, Elijah, then why should I do good? Why, why should I come to church? Why should I give? Why should I volunteer for ministry? Why should I do all these things if, if my love, if, if God's love for me is secured in Christ and I don't have to earn it? You know, what's my motivation? Your motivation is that you love Christ because He first loved you. Your motivation is that God has done something for you that was totally undeserved. He has set you free. You have adorned yourself in grace. You have begun to discover why it was that I was fearfully and wonderfully made. I was fearfully and wonderfully made for a purpose, and my purpose is to bring glory to God. And I seek to honor Him in every area of my life, and I do so with a heart of gratitude and a heart of love and a heart that has been set free by the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an incredible turning point. When you begin to realize that in Christ there is rest and that the call of Christ is to believe and He promises that all who come to Him will find their Sabbath. You'll find your rest in Him. And my prayer for you today is that you will be set free by the sublime, graceful gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I preach this with some passion. Because part of my life story, I was saved as a small boy. But there were years where I didn't understand grace. Where I thought that God loved me whenever I did the right things. And if I did the wrong things, then He denied His love from me. And I struggled with this idea. And then there was that, that turning point moment in my life. I, I when the grace of God just really began to grab a hold of my heart, I began to realize that God's love for me is extended to me in Christ. And because of that, nothing can ever separate me from the love of Christ. And I began to realize what grace is. Grace will set you free. The gospel is sublime. It is graceful. And it is for you. Wear it, live it, share it with joy. Would you be so kind as to bow your heads, please? When Jesus saw her, he called out to her, Woman, you are free from your disability. And then he laid his hands on her, and instantly she was restored, and she began to glorify God. I wonder if today is your day of healing. If today is a day in your life when God restores you. As we've looked at the scriptures today, has the Holy Spirit of God laid His hands upon your soul? Has He shown you some things that will change you and allow you to say like King David, he restores my soul and He sets my paths on righteousness, sets me on the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. I pray that for many in this room today, it'll be a turning point when you come alive to the magnificent, beautiful, amazing grace 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we bow our heads in prayer to you, acknowledging that you are our Lord and we are your people. And we pray that we might experience your grace anew. We pray that we might extend the grace that you have extended to us, to others. We pray that we might live it, share it, be set free by it. And I thank you, Lord, for the rest that we find in Jesus Christ. I pray for spiritual healing within the room today. I pray for new beginnings. I pray that just as holiness drives us to grace, that grace will drive us to the genuine holiness of God. So that we seek to serve you, obey you, and love you out of a heart that's filled with gratitude and love towards you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we worship. Amen.